Guys, before proceeding to the message specifically, Operation Christmas Child is something we've been doing as a church for several years. It's an easy way to bless somebody around the world and communicate the gospel with them too. A shoebox, we figured on average, costs about $30 to fill. If we could get two per family, we'd be doing well. That's our goal. Uh, but those will be collected here. We'll, they'll go to a distribution site someplace here in Topeka and from there, I think, to Oklahoma. And they'll be routed someplace around the world. But kids who oftentimes have never heard the gospel will get the gospel presented when they get the shoe boxes, and then there's gospel information in there as well. So hope that you'll put that on your list of things to do starting this week. Don't put it off. The other thing, if you have a study sheet, a correction on the front of that, it says Acts 13.24. It is, in fact, Acts 17.24. So on, so the image behind me, uh, you've got to use your imagination here for just a little bit this morning as we get started. So what I'm asking you to do is imagine your life as a fish. Uh, not necessarily the big shark-like looking thing, but life as a fish, and not just as a fish any place, but as a fish in an aquarium. And so just think for a minute what that might look like. So if you're a fish in an aquarium, you were probably bred and raised in that environment. And your life is lived in a contained place that people engineered, designed, built, put together... There are men or men and women who are filtering the water that you live in and they're making sure it's the right temp. It's either fresh or it's the right salt content. The food that you eat every day is put in there by people as well. And, and on top of that, just imagine like in this picture that you also have a window on your world and you can actually look out of that window by which you'd realize life is bigger than my aquarium. Life is bigger than the constraints I live within. Put yourself in that framework. I'm a fish and I'm living in an aquarium. Somebody's taking care of me all the time and I've actually got a window to a world that's bigger than my own experience. Now if you're that fish and you say to yourself or to the other fish around you, you know something? I don't believe in people. People don't exist. What, what would you say? What would you think of such a fish? The fish lives in a world that was created by someone else. It's fed every day by someone else. It has a window to a world bigger than its own existence, and yet it concludes there's no such thing as people. We would think something was wrong with that picture. But isn't that today, and it's becoming more popular, frankly, to do today, isn't that what people do today who call themselves atheists, where they say they live in the world God made, there's some very obvious reasons to understand we're not alone. We didn't create this place. It didn't come about by its own doing any more than an aquarium or a fishbowl did who will still say there's no such thing as God. And, you know, we say at the end of the day, that's a r rather interesting but also rather foolish take on the world that you and I live in today. We are in the second part of our series, Foundation, and we've said basically every week what we want to do is look at a major theme in Scripture and we want to compare our life to that theme in Scripture. And last week, are we sorry? If I'm turn on, I'll get someplace. Um, last week we said basically from Jesus' words in Matthew 7, Jesus said if we took in his word, if we held it to ourselves, 
if it comes out of an honest and a good heart, it will not only produce fruitfulness through us, but we will be building a rock-like foundation for our lives. Our lives will be something that exists so that there's this immovable element to them. So that when life comes along and throws us curves and difficulties, we actually have a foundation that will withstand that. And not only that, but that we have a foundation that's adequate to take us right on into eternity as well. So this morning we're looking at the subject, the topic of God. We've got seven topics and God is the first one. That's the biggest one. It's the most important. And obviously there's very little we can say in one one brief teaching on a Sunday morning on this, but we want to cover some high points about God and say, are we living our life with the implications of God's existence and what kind of a God he is in our life today? Are we building on a rock today? So let me start at the very beginning as we contemplate God this morning. And this is Genesis 1.1. You don't even have to look up in your Bible to get this out. Do you? Well-known passage, right? Start of all the beginning right here. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the text says. But I just want to focus on those first four words. In the beginning, God. In the, in the Hebrew, that's Elohim. It's the plural for God. But in the beginning, God. And there's this implication here. When the beginning started, God was there to start it up. Before God started the world, before Genesis 1-1, guys, there was no time. There was no space. There was no matter. There was no aquarium. There was no fishbowl. So Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning, God, God started everything off, and there was nothing in existence before he kicked it off. There was no space. There was no matter. There were no galaxies. There were no angels. There were no demons. There were certainly no humans. There was no life. Before God created it in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Before the beginning, there was God. When God created time, he was already there. He is self-existent. So this is, this is where we go with this. Everything that has existence has it because of God and not independent from him. Just like those fish live within a fish bowl, an aquarium, there's no aquarium if someone doesn't make it. The fishbowl doesn't exist, much less the fish that would live in it. When you talk about philosophy and theology, sometimes we say things like this. God is the unmoved mover. God is the first cause. He's the cause that has no cause behind him. He has caused all that has happened has come about because God caused it. So everything that has existence, the possibility of existence for everything, is there only because God is, because this self-existent God created all that has been created. The person and the power, that's God that's brought everything into existence. Uh, Moses, in the... I keep getting ahead of myself, guys. Sorry here. Let's try this again. Psalm 90, thanks. So Moses lived a long time. He lived 120 years. And he had a unique perspective on God. He had a unique relationship with God, too. God had spoken to him intimately. Some texts say face-to-face. -face. Other texts say, well, you can't see my face, but I'll show you my glory. Moses had a unique experience with God. And so when Moses is thinking about God, listen to how he describes him. This is Psalm 90. 
He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Notice he doesn't say your creation. He says, you, you, Lord, have been our dwelling place. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting, from eternity past to everlasting, eternity future, you are God. So this is cool that Moses doesn't just say, Lord, we live in the world you created. Moses says, no, Lord, our existence is within you and that you existed before matter, space, and time. You'll exist after matter, space, and time. You're not dependent on them, but we are. We occupy the space you gave us within your very being. God, we live in you. Listen to the way Job says this in Job 12, verse 10. Sorry, guys, I'll get this right before I finish up this morning. Job said it this way, In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Our life is contained within God, within his person, our maker, our creator, but also, he says, our breath. I don't know if you've ever tried to hold your breath. You can't hold it very long. And if you work at it really hard, you can increase the duration, but it's still not very long. And the thought is this, every breath you take, you take within the person of God. Whether you're awake or asleep, conscious or unconscious, your very breath each moment is a gift from God, your maker and creator. You exist within God. You breathe even within God. In Acts 17 at verse 24, remember Paul is in Athens and he's speaking to a group that doesn't have that personal knowledge of God like Jews did, didn't have the Torah. But even from their group, Paul quotes a poet to show you yourselves have known the same thing that Moses knew and that Job knew. Listen to this from Acts 17. Paul says, the God who made the world, the creator, and everything in it, he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. We're the fish in the fishbowl. God's given us everything that's there. It says he's not actually very far from each one of us. For verse 28, here he's quoting a Greek poet. In him, in God, we live and move and have our being. The Greeks knew, the pagans knew that there's a creator God. We not only inhabit the world he made, but we exist within that God within his persona, if you will. So we can say from that, we can say something along this line that, friends, for us, life is a fishbowl. We're fish in the fishbowl. Your existence and mine is possible and is a reality because God created a cosmos for us to live in. And he put us in it. The very possibility of life is because God created a place for us to live. Now, for the fish to have any intelligence and recognize I'm in a fishbowl, I'm in a contained environment, I can, I've got a window I can look out and see, there's other entities that aren't fish, and they put food in here for me and they clean my water, we say that fish should know its world didn't just come about. And its life depends on the people outside that made its world and its life possible. That's just rational. That is the most fundamental of facts and truths. This shouldn't be hard. When you, when you think about someone today who denies the existence of God, and I don't know what goes through your mind, and I'm not inviting any disrespect as I talk about this this morning for sure, 
But what goes through our mind when you meet or you talk to someone who with a straight face tells you there's no such thing as God, God doesn't exist, God's not a possibility? What do we make of that? God has a term for people who deny his existence, and he doesn't say it as some uh, playground bully or sort of throwing stones, name-calling, but he does have a name for people who deny his existence, and it is the term fool. Psalm, 13, Psalm 14, 1 and Psalm 53, 1 both say the same thing. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And it's important to understand what that means. God's not name-calling the way we might somebody who opposes our point of view, not on the same page with us. A fool for God is the person who should have moral intelligence and has refused it. A fool in the Bible is morally culpable before God because he knows an aspect of truth. He knows an element of truth like that there's a God, but he denies it because it's not convenient to him. So in the Bible, a fool is someone who knows something but refused to live in the light of it. That's, in the biblical language, that's a fool. Listen to this from Daniel 5.23. This is an example of a fool in the pages of Scripture. In Daniel 5, it's the last day of the Babylonian Empire, but the king, Belshazzar, doesn't know it. He's throwing a great party, and everybody who's anyone is there. And while they're feasting, a hand comes out of a cup, and it writes on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekelu, Farsen. Your, you and your kingdom have been weighed, you've been found wanting, and God's giving it over to someone else. And listen to what Daniel says to this king of Babylon. He says, you've praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which don't see, hear, or know, because they were praising the gods with their cups. He says, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and in whose are all your ways you have not honored. The God who holds your life and breath, you have not honored. Belshazzar, you've been a fool, and your life is over tonight. God has weighed you and found you wanting. You've lived your life as a fool. You see this same theme developed in Romans 1. This is another well-known apologetic passage. If you've got your Bible, it might be worth it to turn there long enough to look at it. But in verse 20, Paul says this. Paul says, God's invisible attributes, you don't see God, we don't have our eyes on Him, but His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So Paul says when you look at the world, our fishbowl, the aquarium we live in, we experience life in, Paul says that there's some things that we know about God. One is that he has eternal power. And this means, this is Genesis 1.1. Paul is saying when we see the world, we know that a power outside and greater than this world brought it to pass. That a power that isn't contained within the cosmos created the cosmos and that that power is divine in nature. The power that created the heavens and the earth is God, is divine, is not like the creation or the creature, different than us. Eternal power, divine nature. And Paul says, so they are without excuse. And this is where we say, guys, there's no such thing really at the end of the day as an atheist. Because God says here that everyone knows there's a God. Everyone knows there's a God. Atheists are people who say, 
on one hand, maybe not consciously, I know there's a God, but I refuse to acknowledge that truth, that reality. I'm going to live as if that doesn't exist. That truth isn't real. It's not real for me. It's fine for you, but not for me. No, Paul says they're without excuse. He says they knew God. The person who says there's no God, he says, nope, they know there's a God. They knew God, but they didn't honor Him as God to give Him thanks. They became, listen, futile in their thinking. Foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. There's that term again. It's moral corruption. Everyone, Paul says, knows that there's a God. Someone put this fishbowl together. God calls all of us, all men everywhere, one, to repent, to believe in Him, but he also calls everyone to live in what's called the fear of the Lord, that we know there's a creator, we know there's a God, we know that's not us, and that it's incumbent on us to live in light of God's reality. Just the fear of the Lord, just the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of gaining real wisdom and knowledge comes with recognizing there's a God and it's not me, and I want to live my life in light of his reality. Now, guys, some of us, and I've got three descriptions here, Evangelical Christians can fit any of these categories I'm using here. Some of us live as if God is irrelevant. If there is a God, and maybe we say, no, there is a God. We, we believe there's a God. But it's irrelevant because it doesn't affect our life in any way whatsoever. We simply go about, maybe we even say, I believe in Jesus. I don't read the scriptures. I'm not part of a local fellowship. I'm not, I don't have a part in the local church. I don't pray, I don't read God's Word, but I'm a Christian. And you say, well, that's an interesting take, isn't it? That's an in, a practical atheist, even if you say you believe in God. God's irrelevant. He has no meaning, no purpose in your life. By the way, there's almost, that's a, the ultimate insult to God is to act as if He doesn't matter. Now, God says, I'd rather you were hot towards me, cold towards me, but lukewarm is the worst. I believe in God, but He's, he's so insignificant, He doesn't matter in my life. Some of us live as if God is our servant. The creator God who gives us existence, has our breath in his hand. We treat him as if he's Jeeves or James. And so we say, Jeeves, I need something. Would you go take care of that for me? Uh, my life is in pain. Would you go fix that for me? Or Santa Claus. A Santa, this is what I want for Christmas this year. My life's not complete the way it is. I would like ABC. Here's my hit list. God is the cosmic Santa Claus. God is the cosmic Jeeves who's here for our will and our benefit. That's a little inadequate too, isn't it? Some of us thank God occasionally, like maybe we say grace over meal, we say thanks over meal, but we live the rest of our life as if we're on our own and God's good with that and so are we. God, again, at some important level is irrelevant, though occasionally we thank Him you know, God is creator. He, he deserves a lot more than that. And in fact, he demands a lot more than that. But God is our maker. We're the fish in that fishbowl. Everything we know, everything we have depends on God. It's incumbent on us to acknowledge him as our creator. But God, it get, guys, it gets better than that. When you study God specifically, we call that theology. And I just want to talk about some of what are called the attributes or the characters of God. And we'll name just a few because we don't have time to do more or to do any justice to these. You have a list on your study sheet. I'm going to hit just a few. One of the things is this. God is holy. And to say God is holy means at least a couple things. God is without any moral deficiency. 
God is everything and only what he should be. He's nothing that he should not be. There's no moral deficiency in God. Uh, James 1 says that there's no hint of shadow, moral shadow in God, not even the hint of something that shouldn't be there. It also means, though, that God is the only truly unique entity in all the universe. Holy also means that. He's the only truly unique entity in all the universe. Angels aren't like God. Humans aren't like God. No created being is like God. God is absolutely holy, everything he should be, nothing that he shouldn't be, and he's absolutely unique. If you know that God is absolutely unique and that he's the creator of everything you've ever known, God should be the ultimate object of our pursuit and our study. To see him as he is and then to become like him. God in covenant with Israel said this in Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. He says, I'm God, so you set yourselves apart and you be holy because I'm holy. That for us to get to know our creator, God requires that we leave moral depravity behind because that's not what he does. He says, you be holy because I'm holy. You be like me. I'm holy. You're to be holy. Psalm 92.15 says it this way. To declare that the Lord is upright, he's my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. There's nothing deficient or wanting within God. He's perfect. The next one on your list I'll cover here briefly is God is just. This is hugely important. And guys, one of the things you'll find that when you talk about God to others, many people will say something like this. God is unjust or God is unfair. I'll bet most of us here have said this at some time in our life. And it's usually an accusation of God. We say, that's not fair. And what we mean is, God, you've done something we don't agree with. You've done something that's wrong. The treatment I receive, the treatment they receive, the way life's going, it's unjust. It's an accusation against God. And this is the thing. Because God is holy, everything he should be, nothing he shouldn't be, because he is just, God cannot ever be and he cannot ever do anything that's less than just. He can't be less than just. You've never experienced injustice from God's hand. You never will. We need to also remember, we don't want God's justice. Guys, you and I, as deficient sinners before God, do not want justice. But you will never get, you can never get, no one can ever get anything less than justice from God. We can get more than that, but you can never get less than that. No matter what accusation someone levels against God, you can tell them it's impossible for God to do injustice. It's against his nature. It's an impossibility. Listen to what Moses said in another song in Deuteronomy 32.4. He says the rock of God, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are just. He's a God of faithfulness with no injustice. Righteous and upright is he. That's God. Always just. Never less than that. Psalm 9 verses 7 and 8 say this way. The Lord abides forever. He established his throne for judgment or for justice. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity everything god does in judgment will be absolutely perfect and right it'll be just absolutely can't be otherwise we're going to triple it up here on a couple of these for time's sake god is omnipotent omniscient and omnipresent god has all power he's everywhere and he knows everything now if you're in a right relationship with god 
those characteristics are comforting because this means if God makes a promise to you, you know he'll keep it because he knows all things. He has all power and he's present in all places. God can never lie. And he has the ability, the power, the presence, the will to do everything he said. God can tell us the future because he lives from eternity past to eternity future and time is like a bubble to God. He sees it all at once. There's no future to God in that sense. He's in time, he acts in time, but he's outside of time, not constrained by it. If God makes you a promise, you can count on it. No power in the universe can keep you out of God's hand or protection. Nothing can thwart God's purposes in your life or mine, or ultimately for his church, his purposes for this world. Listen to this. This is from Daniel 4, verse 35. The most powerful man on earth was the king of Babylon in his day, Nebuchadnezzar. And he could do anything he wanted. But God humbled him because he was proud. He thought he was all that. He thought his power was his doing. God humbled him, made it, gave him the mind of a beast. And when he restored him, this is what Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on earth in his day, said. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. God looks at the inhabitants of the earth and says, you guys are insignificant on a cosmic scale. He, God, does according to his will in the host of heaven. That means when you look up at the starry night, we gain some sense of how big the universe is. Nebuchadnezzar says God does whatever he wants in the universe, in the cosmos, all the energy of the sun, the planets, the gravity, the dark matter, whatever you want to think about. He says he does in that stuff whatever he wants. He has that kind of power. Among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can prevent God because of his power from doing what he wills to do. No one and nothing. God has all power. Isaiah 43, 13 says, From eternity I am he, God speaking, there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and no one can reverse it. God's omnipotent. He's omniscient and he's omnipresent. You are safe in God's hands wherever you go, whatever's going on in your life. The last I want to give is another triplet here, and this is God is loving, gracious, and kind. If we acknowledge that there was a creator of the universe, but he wasn't benevolent, that might not be good for us. But if you say the creator of the universe is not only just, but he's also loving and gracious and kind, I've got someone now who I find highly desirable in getting to know. 1 John 4, 8 says, anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. Guys, every element, every aspect of love that you and I have ever experienced has been an echo of God's love. People who reject God who still love another person, they are in fact, without knowing it, they are expressing one of the characteristics of God himself because God is love. There's a passage that I love and Ephesians chapters 1 and 2 are just some of the, the, the deepest and broadest of all the scriptures in all the Bible. But in that, just to get a sense of this, Paul's been talking some pretty heavy theology and he tells us, he says, you guys were dead in your trespasses and sins you lived your life in opposition to God, and he says you were children of wrath. You were objects for God's righteous justice. And then he says, into that scenario, God was rich in mercy. Here, not justice, not giving you and I what we deserve. God was rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. God loved us with a great love. Out of that love, we get his mercy and he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And in that spiritual dead condition, God made us alive together with Christ. 
And then parenthetically, he says, by grace you have been saved. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God's love moved God's mercy and God's grace. And he says it's for this end. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. By grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not your doing. It's God's gift. Isn't that interesting? Did you know that on one realm, have you guys ever been to a, a real sportsman's house, a hunter or a fisherman, and he's got the stuffed fish on the walls or he's got the bear rug or the elk mount or whatever it is? Did you know there's a sense in which that's what you and I are? You know, if we're fish in the fish tank, you're the bass that's hung on God's wall in this sense. Paul says you are a trophy that displays God's grace and kindness and mercy. He says because God did this so that he can put on display the riches of his grace and kindness and mercy forever. And you and I, instead of just being fish mounted on the wall, the truth is we get to see this. You'll never come to the end of discovering God's love, grace, kindness, and mercy. Forever we will be discovering new elements of that in God. But our salvation, our creator didn't just create us, but now in Christ he saved us and he's displaying his love through Christ in us. That's a big deal. All this too, it's important to realize God isn't sometimes just. Sometimes you'll hear people say, God in the Old Testament's angry, God in the New Testament's love. Nope, wrong. God is always just, he's always loving. He's never more one of his attributes than another. They are all perfectly synchronized, if you could even say it that way in God at all times. He's loving in his justice. He's just in his love. All of these things are always perfectly together. Now, if you describe and if you say God created us, and so for that alone, we should respect him, but also he's this benevolent, just, holy, loving, gracious God. Why would we not want to base our life on him? Why would we not want to be in communion with that kind of a God? Now, take all of that truth God created the heavens and the earth. He's holy, he's just, he's benevolent, omnipotent, omnipresent, all those things. And now we take all that and we say, that's not only true of Elohim who created the heavens and the earth, that's not only true of Yahweh who revealed himself in the Old Testament, but now, wonder of wonders, now we say in the New Testament, that's all true of Jesus as well. That Jesus comes to the earth in our humanity and he claims to be Elohim, of Genesis 1 and Yahweh of the Old Testament. And the Apostle John makes sure, if you were Jewish, you'd get this right off the bat. So in English, though, this comes through too, doesn't it? In the beginning, God. And John's Gospel says, in the beginning was the Word. And you're supposed to, if you've read your Old Testament, when you hear John 1.1, 1, 1, you're supposed to think Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John the Apostle comes along and says, in the beginning was the Word, and he's going to tell us the Word is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, before time began, when the beginning was put together, when space and time started, in the beginning, the Word, Jesus, was with God, and in the beginning, the Word was God. In the beginning, Jesus is Elohim, and Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament. When you read about Genesis 1, in the beginning God created, that's Jesus. That's the claim here. 
And it's reiterated over and over and over through the New Testament so that we say all the things that are true of Yahweh Elohim are true of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah. You remember in uh, John 14 in the upper room before Jesus suffers and he's been, he washed his disciples' feet. And I mean, the incarnation's mind-blowing enough, right? But he takes the lowest form of a servant and he tells his disciples, I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to go and I'm going to make a place for you. And, and the disciples are listening to this and they're dull like we are most of the time and they're having a hard time getting their mind wrapped around this. And so Philip, God bless him, says, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. We love what you're saying. We love where you're going with this. But just take this one step further. You just show us the Father. This is just like Moses, isn't it? Lord, show me your glory. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And, and we're good. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long you still don't know me, Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? Guys, this is a unique claim. The implications are profound, aren't they? Jesus is God or he's an absolute liar. And you can't get that he's a liar. This is a claim to deity. I and the Father are one. Jesus is Elohim. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. 1 John 2.23 says this, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Friends, Christians are meant to be unapologetic in the presentation of the gospel to say that if you're without Jesus, you're without God. Jesus is God. If you reject Jesus, you've rejected God. You cannot reject Jesus and not reject God. This isn't a slight to people who believe in some other form of religion. It's just the bare naked truth. Jesus says, I'm God. If you reject me, you've rejected God himself. The claims of Christ are exclusive. Jesus as our creator has become one of us. So that's the incarnation. He joins us in our fishbowl. And we know this isn't just so that God comes into our presence and reveals himself to us, but it's so that he can take our sins on himself and die for our culpability for our sins and reconcile us back to the creator father. Jesus has become our redeemer. And guys, it's important. I don't know if you've ever struggled with this. I've struggled at times with the thought that God has loved me and accepted me in Christ, but it's sort of like I'm in Jesus and so God has to love me. But no, you know, you think about the passage in Ephesians 5 where it says that the kind of animated, emotional, uh, heart-filled desire that a bridegroom has for his bride, that's the kind of intensity, that's the kind of personal love Jesus has for his own. It's motivated, it's heartfelt, it's energized, it's overflowing. You aren't merely accepted, you're loved. You're loved by the Father and loved by the Son. Now, not only do we get that Jesus is Elohim, but in John 14, Jesus takes that one step further. He says, God is creator, and I as the Son am creator also. And then in John 14, 16, he says this, before I leave you, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to give you another helper. And that phrase means someone just like me, someone of the same kind and quality as I am. He's going to give you another helper to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world can't receive it because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. He dwells with you now 
but he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit there. If you go back to Genesis 1, verse 2, do you remember what the picture is there? So Genesis 1, 1, God creates. John 1, 1, Jesus is God. He creates. And in Genesis 1, 2, the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters. You get here in the New Testament, we come to know and understand the Father is Creator, the Son is Creator, the Spirit is Creator. The Father has sent the Son to die for your sins and mine, to give us Himself in the Holy Spirit. And guys, since the days of Pentecost, every person who trusts Christ for forgiveness of sins is sealed, is stamped by the Holy Spirit and becomes the temple of God, the Holy Spirit Himself, your Creator now living inside you. That's mind-blowing. But every Christian and Christians collectively as the church are the temple of God because the Creator God and the person of the Holy Spirit, one just like Jesus, has come down to inhabit us. That's from Ephesians 1.13 and 1 Corinthians 2.12. So as we wind down, guys, I, there's a lot to talk, but this is a little self-test, a little bit about what this looks. Life in a fishbowl, are we aware that someone made that fishbowl for us? And what's our relationship to the one who made the fishbowl? Have I admitted that God is, that every breath I draw is at His pleasure, that I live, move, and have my being within God, that every breath... I draw as a gift from Him. Do I live in the light of that? And have I accepted that God has revealed Himself in the person of Jesus? Friends, it's not enough for someone to nicely, respectfully say, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus. It's not enough. It's a rejection of God. It's a rejection of the claims of our Creator, who is now our Redeemer God. Jesus is God, one and the same. Have I, res have I respected that claim Jesus has made, and have I bowed my will to Jesus as my Savior. Have I also uh, taken on the truth of the reality that the Holy Spirit is present in me? You know, we typically say we pray to God the Father in the name or the authority of Jesus the Son, but we do so by the person or the power or the presence of the Holy Spirit. Think of this for a minute. The power above all powers, the power that created the universe, we accept this by faith because you can't get it any other way. God said it, so we believe it. But the power of all powers, the power that brought the universe into creation, indwells you. And yet, did you know that every Christian has the ability to grieve the power that created the universe or to quench the impulse of a power that cannot otherwise be thwarted? That you have the power to do that? because God allows it. That's out of Ephesians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5. Am I living submitted to God in a way that not only takes His existence into account, submitted to Him in Christ, but is also living in the reality that God the Holy Spirit, the power of all powers, is living inside me, and I'm told, don't grieve the Holy Spirit whereby you've been sealed for the day of redemption, and also don't quench the Holy Spirit when you get that impulse that God wants you to do something. Don't quench that that fire, that impulse, the God of all gods living inside of us. Am I living a life of thanksgiving simply that God's given me life and existence and a place to do that in this lovely world? We know it's sin cursed. We know death abounds all around us. But we still see, do we not, echoes of Eden here and, and actually foretaste of the eternal glory we're going to from here. Are we living in the light of that?
Are we praising God for the perfection of his person and works? The more we get to know God, the more we want to know him. The more praise and the more worship is a part of our life. Are we worshiping God by humbly committing to him our will and our works? And guys, this isn't every day. This is a life as I breathe type thing. I live in relationship with God. Is that true of my life? What truth do I need to embrace? What habit do I need to give up? What practice do I need to begin in order to more fully set my life on the rock that is the triune God, the loving sending Father, the loving and redeeming Son, and the loving and indwelling Holy Spirit? Father, would you make yourself more real to us? Would you by your Spirit reveal more fully the glories of your Son? Lord, the depth and breadth of your grace and kindness to us in Christ. Lord, the gift that is your Spirit's presence within us and among us. Would you help us to build lives that are founded on the rock of your person and your work in Christ? Lord, so that we can live lives that are successful and happy in all the best ways here on planet Earth, whatever that looks like. But also so that, Lord, we... We're ushered into the halls of eternity in your presence in a way that has brought you glory and honor all along the way. God, thank you for being the loving creator that you are, the saving redeemer, and the abiding presence in us. In Jesus' name, amen.